You can be seated, and kids, you are dismissed for Gospel Project. Good morning, everyone. Great to see some of you back um, after the break. I know that schools get fired back up this week, so I'm sure you're looking forward to that. Kids, hope you have a great time as you continue working your way through the biblical story. Uh, we will be in John chapter 3 today, so turn there with me in your Bible, and if you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the seat in front of you. you can look up the book of John in the table of contents. Big numbers is the chapter, smaller numbers the verse. As uh, was mentioned by both um, Austin and Randy, we're starting a new series of messages today that'll last a couple of weeks. Our purpose as a church is summarized in this uh, statement. Church on Mill exists to glorify God through lives changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. But what does that mean and how do we go uh, about it? Every other year, we spend some time in January going back and trying to reconsider those questions together. And uh, a lot of us uh, have come since we've last done this, so it may be new information for some of us. There have been uh, 42 people join Church on Mill in the last 18 months. Give you a little bit of the scope. So praise God for that. Over the next six weeks, our plan is to uh, pull back the curtain, as it were, and look backstage to see what those of us who call this uh, church our family believe and uh, how we choose to go about ministry. If I could speak to maybe three different groups of people just by way of introduction. Uh, if you're a, a member here, so one of those 42 plus those who are already committed, I want to encourage you to, as we work our way through this together, to ask the Lord to renew in you a passion for your church and to give you new insights that you can personally work at uh, applying. All of us can continue to grow and make a progress. Uh, a second group would be those of you who are here today who are not yet Christians. Uh, we are thrilled that you're here. Thank you for allowing us the privilege of uh, a few minutes of your time. We're thrilled that you are uh, joined us this morning, and we're happy that you're here. This will be a great series for you to consider what... Uh, the Bible claims about Christ and about Christ's church. We, as Christians, believe that the Bible instructs us in how we should live a shared life together, and so you'll get a close look at that. And then if you're a Christian here today but have not made a commitment to a church, I hope that this series will persuade you that although it may not feel like it, you're living in a precarious, perilous situation. You need a church home. I don't know if this is the one for you, but if you're a follower of Christ, then God would have you to make a commitment somewhere. And so whether that ends up being here or not, uh, honestly, largely, I don't care all that much. But I do care that you make a commitment somewhere. So our prayer as leaders will be that God would persuade you that you need the accountability and the friendship and the commitment of a body of Christians, a family to be a part of. So that's where we're headed. Uh, today we're going to start building from the ground up, just laying a basic foundation for the rest of our time uh, together. And we could summarize maybe the message in this way. Church, uh, we are a people of good news because we have a God 
who has a great message. We are people of good news because we have a God who has a great message. Most famous verse in the Bible is John 3:16. How that ever got dubbed as the NFL verse, I don't know. I think that's rather strange for such a violent sport. But you will never watch a football game probably without seeing John 3:16. So, in the spirit of football, I'm kidding. Let's look at this verse, John 3:16. In fact, it's just one verse, so let's read it together. For God John 3:16. Just want to take it phrase by phrase with you, and that's what we'll do the rest of our time that we have together. For God so loved the world. Two questions. Uh, number one, who is this God? And number two, what does it mean that he loved the world? First, who is this God? One really interesting fact about the Bible is that it never directly argues for the existence of God. It simply assumes it. The Bible begins with these words, in the beginning, God. And the Bible ends with these words, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all, amen. Nowhere from Genesis to Revelation is there a sustained argument for the existence of God. Now that probably strikes us as modern people as rather strange. But in the biblical way of looking at things, apparently it's simply overwhelmingly evident that God exists. In other words, it's a foregone conclusion in the biblical witness that the spiritual is just as common, as natural, as real, as evident as the physical. The vast majority of cultures around the world throughout history have shared the belief that there is some kind of material world and immaterial world. Now that, of course, doesn't demonstrate God exists, doesn't prove it. People used to believe the world was flat and Time and investigation have shown that to be wrong. So that doesn't prove Christianity, doesn't prove God's existence. But let's think about that for a moment uh, together. You say God exists, prove it, you might assert. Well, I'd much rather buy you a cup of coffee and sit across a little round table and have a conversation with you about that. I think that statement is probably best handled with dialogue, with a conversation one-on-one. -on -one. So let's pretend for a few moments that that's what we're doing. All right? Some of you have some coffee? Yes? Thank you for sharing with me. One important fact that we've got to admit right from the start is no one comes to that question of God's existence neutral. We all come with baggage, every single one of us. All of us come to the question of God's existence with a set of presuppositions. We may have thought through them. Many times we will have not thought through them. But those 
presuppositions drive the way we think. And there's no way around that. That's simply the way it is. You see, a person that says, I believe in God, is often considered to be a person of faith. Whereas the person who says, I don't believe in God, is considered to be a person not using faith. But friend, both are people with a kind of faith. Both positions require faith because you can't prove God doesn't exist any more than I can prove he does exist. So perhaps we could come together to an even level playing field. A naturalistic worldview cannot demonstrate the physical world is all there is. Any more than a Christian can somehow prove as in a scientific lab that God does exist. I can't lift up a prayer and force God to appear in such a way that you would think if God showed up this way, then I would know for sure he exists. Any more than the person who says he doesn't exist can do the opposite. You see, both are making a claim of faith. Both are making an absolute truth statement. So let's acknowledge our presuppositions so that we can fairly look at the evidence that we have. The Christian God is not a God of this world. He's a spiritual being. So that means that we can't prove his existence empirically. Can't do it. Now, I've chosen to give my life to the belief that God does exist, and that not only does he exist, but he's good and he's knowable. But I would be the first to admit to you I cannot prove empirically that God exists. We can't offer conclusive proof. We simply must look at the evidence and ask what the most logical explanation is for the way things are. When you do that, I believe you'll reach the conclusion that at the very least, it's not irrational to believe God exists. Why? There's signposts everywhere. Everywhere. I'm uh, 40. That's why my leg is messed up and I'm sitting. All those of you over 40 are offended, of which my wife will be this week. Now, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm 40, and it might surprise you to hear a preacher say this, but for over half of my 40 years, I would have told you that I think it's easier to believe that God doesn't exist than to believe he does. Why? Well, mainly because I was born at a certain time, in a certain place, and I have a certain kind of personality. But today, I would tell you I have absolutely no question. None. But I say that to say to those of you who have doubts, that I get the struggle, and that I'd love to have that cup of coffee with you. And so take this as a free offer, Would you call me, email me, 
catch me up here at the front after the gathering. There is at least one person in the room that would say, I understand. I have had the doubts and questions and struggles. But the Scriptures would tell us that there are signposts of God's existence along the way. The purpose of this message today isn't to persuade you of them, but I want to just mention them very quickly. There are four. One, there is something rather than nothing. That's what Scripture would tell us is the creation, that there is a creator, that a way we know God exists is that there is something rather than nothing and that it works. Number two, there is the fact that you've been taken care of. You're here. You're breathing. You're upright. You've likely eaten today. You have probably laughed in the last week. There's probably a friend that you would call by their first name. That's what the Scriptures call common grace. That there's common grace, and that shows that there is a God. Third, every one of us has an innate internal sense of right and wrong. Where does that come from? What makes something good and something bad? That's what Romans 2 tells us is a conscience. Uh, All of us have a conscience. And then finally, someone acted in the first century in a way that's fundamentally changed the course of human history forever. That someone is a man named Jesus. And Jesus is ultimately the picture of God because he's God himself. So who is this God This God who says he loves you. Well, the last thing I'd want to do is win some abstract argument and merely get you to mental assent that God exists. God is not an idea to put on a shelf. He is the supreme being to worship, to obey, and to enjoy. One author put it this way, for Christians, for many, Christianity has become the grinding out of general doctrinal laws from collections of biblical facts. But childlike wonder and awe have died. The scenery and poetry and music of the majesty of God have dried up like a forgotten peach at the back of the refrigerator. Church, that's not the kind of Christian we're trying to nurture each other into. That's not the kind of church we want to be. We want to be a people that believe that God not only exists, but he's also wonderful, that he's worthy of worship and service and obedience, and all of that's rooted in joy. Because you see, the scriptures tell us that God is perfect, and yet somehow he's approachable. That God's not only everywhere, but he's here. That God's all-powerful, and yet he's kind. That God is just, and yet he's forgiving. That God not only knows everything, but God knows you. That God is transcendent, and yet he's knowable. That he's almighty, and yet gentle. 
this is the God of the Bible. Now, what does it mean that God so loved the world? That was our second question within this first little phrase. Well, notice the word so. God's love for the world is a so kind of love, meaning God's love is not moderate. God does not ease into it. Christian, God does not have a mild love for you. God's love for you is not like your love for him. It's far greater. It's perfect. It's unrelenting. It's complete. It's intense. And this so love, this intense love, is of a quantity and a quality that you will never experience anything else like it. There's nothing better to consider as we start a new year. God loves his people not because of anything lovable about them, but simply because he loves them. That makes it a 100% totally pure love. A love that's not full of sentimentality, but of sacrifice. And that sheer wonder of a God who loves like that comes into focus when we consider the objects of that love, namely the world. A lot of people know John 3.16, but does the rest of the paragraph get read? Look at verse 19. And this is the judgment In the biblical worldview, love and judgment are not at odds. And this is the judgment, the light, that's a way of referring to Jesus. The light has come into the world. And people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. Now, this stings a bit, doesn't it? No one wants to think of themselves as darkness and evil. But friends, if we're honest, can't we all admit we've done some things in the dark that we'd rather not be brought into the light? We're a very different group But don't we share that? We've all done some things that we've covered up. And even as I'm saying those words, what are you hoping about your past or your present? What are you hoping does not get exposed? That sense that we all have, that things are not quite right with us, is universal. And it's not only universal, it's good.
We are morbidly self-absorbed, clamoring around in the dark, trying to grab anything we can to cause us to feel distracted, to feel a moment's pleasure, to feel a little bit of significance or acceptance or escape from the blinding darkness that surrounds us. I'm not saying we're all as bad as we could be, but I am saying that none of us are as, are, are as we should be. Now, God, our Creator, could, of course, say, have it your way. You want life without me? Take it. That is what Romans 1 tells us is the wrath of God. But that's not the only way that God has chosen to act. Instead, church, God intervened in a stunning way. How? In love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Notice that little word only. So let's move from so to only. That he gave his only son. Friend, Jesus isn't one out of many. There isn't a long line of saviors stacked up, headed down to earth over stretches of time. There's one. There is one savior. Jesus is the only son. He's utterly unique. He's the one the Old Testament, that first two-thirds of the Bible, has always been pointing forward to. And he's the one the New Testament, that last third, is all about. He is literally the hinge upon which time swings. He's the centerpiece of everything. And God the Father freely gave God the Son to restore relationships shattered by sin. First, the relationship of people and God, but then the relationships of people and other people. That's the beauty of the church, is that we are a little laboratory in which God is putting people back together. He's restoring them to something they never had, a right relationship with God and then a right relationship with other people who are in right relationship with God, in which we would live in a glass house, and that be a good thing, so that the world could peer in and see there is a good God who fixes people and restores them to relationship with God and with each other. So friends, quite simply, the reason Church on Mill exists is to tell this good news about Jesus Christ and to put that good news on display in the quality of our relationships. Now we live in what's been recently dubbed the era of fake news. Are you familiar with this? Fake news consists of stories that aren't true, but are passed around as though they are true. This is a thing, if you aren't familiar with it. In fact, one study just concluded this week, this last week, that 10.6 million shares and reactions on Facebook about politics were directly from fake news sources. That is just barely under half 
of every single news story shared on Facebook in 2016. If you're getting your news and sharing your news on Facebook, half of what you've shared is a lie. But church, we don't have any fake news here. We have good news. News that isn't mostly true. News that is 100% gospel true. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, God gave his son in love who died a death he didn't deserve as a stand-in for sinners. And one thing everybody must do is come to terms with who Jesus claims to be and what he claimed to have done. That's why we're here. That's what the church is for, period. And we want to share good news with you today. Whether you are young or old, atheist or Muslim, rich or poor, heterosexual or homosexual, religious or irreligious, the news is exactly the same. God is a God of love, and he's come in the person of Christ to offer himself for you. Church on Mill exists to share who Jesus is and what he's done. And we long, transparently, honestly, and no doubt imperfectly, to demonstrate that Jesus is alive and well, and to show it by how we live, because he's changing us. If he changed me, he can change you. This is why Church on Mill gathers at 13th and Mill in downtown Tempe, to be a light in the darkness. First, yes, in downtown Tempe. And God's given us wonderful opportunities here, hasn't he? But then from out of downtown Tempe to the broader valley, as we scatter to where we live and where we work, where we go to school, that we would be Christians in public. And then around the globe through strategic partnerships with missionaries. Why? Because John 3.16 is true. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Bless you. That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Friends, when we finally quit pretending that we can make it just fine on our own, and we come to terms with the fact that God exists, and we press a little further down into truth, then what happens is invariably we come face to face with Jesus Christ. Jesus is the blazing center of God's love for the world. God has made being in relationship with him possible through Jesus Christ. And you see, God doesn't grade on a curve. He doesn't take your goodness and badness and weigh them out as though, as though if your goodness is better than your badness, then you squeak in. Or if your goodness is better than your neighbor's badness, then you squeak in. It doesn't work that way. It's far more simple. 
You see, you don't have to obey a certain set of religious rules. You don't have to have had a certain religious upbringing. You don't have to have abstained from sex before marriage. You don't have to have never questioned something God said. You don't have to complete a class or go to confirmation or get baptized or wait till you're a little bit older. You don't have to clean your life up first. You don't have to have put money in the offering or have all your doubts resolved. You simply have to believe. You simply have to trust. Can you imagine a a message that simple? Do you believe Jesus? Do you take him at his word that he left heaven, came to earth, lived the life of obedience you should have lived, and died the death we all deserve to die? Do you trust the biblical witness that says three days later he rose in victory? And do you understand a love this grand necessitates 100% trust and surrender? If so, that's it. That's the message. That's the good news. And there's nothing fake about it. That's the gospel. The Apostle Paul put it this way in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. This saying is trustworthy and deserves full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am the foremost. That's God's message. Christ came to save sinners. That's the love of God. And that's a grand love, is it not? If you're here today and you've never responded to this good news. Why remain indifferent? Why remain cold? Why cling to yourself when there is a love for you that's better, grander, more rich and full and perfect than you will ever find anywhere else? Why stiff-arm God? when his arms are stretched out wide. This is the gospel, and it's for you. Why continue on the path of perishing when Jesus freely offers his life to you? Why remain the center of your tiny little universe when the God who made the universe offers you love and grace Forgiveness. Who is Church on Mill? And why are we here? Quite simply, we are people who trust and worship Jesus. We're people who believe Christ came into the world to save sinners, among whom we all are the foremost of all. That's it. We're nothing special. We're simply nobody's boasting about somebody because he's rescued us in kindness and grace. We're Jesus' people. And why are we here? 
We're here to tell anyone who will listen, and then to walk side by side with all who respond, helping each other grow up in Christ. I love the way a a new book put it. Christianity's unsurpassed offers are these, a meaning that suffering cannot remove, a satisfaction not based on circumstances, a freedom that doesn't hurt but rather enhances love, an identity that does not crush you or exclude others, a moral compass that doesn't turn you into an oppressor, and a hope that can face anything, even death. That's what Christianity offers. It's a great way of saying it, isn't it? Church, this is who we are. That's why we're here. To share the gospel. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever, even you, whoever would believe will not perish, but have everlasting life. Do you have that life? If not, you may not have come here planning to do anything at all. But if you believe, would you place your trust in Him? And then everything changes. Life does not then become simple, but the Savior saves. And the Spirit then comes to live in you. And then if you will stand and pledge your life with him in a public commitment of baptism, which you've seen so many of recently, hasn't it been wonderful? Then you have a church family who will walk side by side with you. That's why we're here, to help each other grow up in Christ, that we may proclaim together this great message that Jesus saves. Let's pray. Before I lead us in a corporate prayer, I wonder if you'd take a moment to ask the Lord what he would have you do with what you've heard today.
Father, it's only one verse, really, that we looked at. And yet I find myself almost without words to know how to pray in response to it. Because your love is overwhelming. God, we thank you for a love that did not originate in us, but came freely flowing from you, who chose out of your own free will to send your son to die and rise again. And those of us in the room who have been awakened to faith and repentance and have responded, those who have experienced the rebirth, have been adopted into your family. And so we say together, thank you. We praise you. And sure, we're caught between your first coming and your second. And so there is hardship. There are times we still have doubts. There are verses we don't like and days we struggle and indwelling sin. There's suffering we didn't expect and questions that remain unanswered. And yet we have experienced your love. And as your disciples said, where else can we go? You have the words of life. As we start a new year together as a church, we pray that by your grace and your kindness, more than ever before, that we would be a church of joy, that we would be a church of holiness, that we would be a church marked by kindness and forgiveness, that we would be truth-tellers, grace-givers, peace-makers. For your glory and for the good of this city you have sovereignly placed us in. Father, I pray for those among us who are followers of Christ but who are at a point of doubting your love, whose hearts have grown cold, who can't remember the last time it felt as though you spoke to them. Father, would you cause this ever so popular verse to warm cold heart. Would you speak your word even now in a way that refreshes my brother or sister? Would you bring about renewed hope and confidence in you? such that, God, this brother or sister could leave in a moment and could say, why so downcast, O my soul? Hope in God, I will yet again praise him. 
I pray for the other brother or sister who's heard that prayer and can't imagine actually feeling that way, that, God, you would please prepare them, that you would sink their roots down deep into you because that day will come. There is dark night of the soul for every Christian. Father, may we be a church this year that can bear the weight of Christians who enter into struggle and suffering. And that we could hold up each other's arms when it feels as though we can't cling to your promises anymore. And last, God, I would pray for the non-Christians in the room. Thank you that we're a church that every week as we gather, there are people here who are considering Christ. What a privilege. We pray, Father, that we would be a safe place where questions can be asked and respectful answers can be given. We pray that we would be a people where Christians confess sin and don't pretend to have it all together. God, I pray that you would shed light where there is darkness and that you would awaken people to faith and repentance. We praise you in all these things. In Jesus' name, amen.